Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. Gentlemen, welcome. Today, we are at episode five of the Thinking Christianly podcast, and we are talking about the authority of scripture. What does it mean? How do we understand this ancient text? Our first question is going to get us get us kind of into the deep water fast. So what I want to ask you to is what inerrancy means to both of you. Well, uh, I would I would define it as an understanding of inspiration according to which properly interpreted whatever the Bible teaches to be true is true as it was written in the original autographic text type. A couple of quick things. People Mm -hmm. say we don't have the autographs. They're gone. But yes, we do. Uh, I said the text type, not the individual scribbles. And so when a pastor, let's suppose we've all got the same translation, the New International Version, and the pastor says, I'm looking at John 3.16, let's all turn to the same verse. Well, they don't all run up and peek over his shoulder to make sure they're looking at the same verse he's looking at. Because he's not saying, let's all look at the same example of the verse. They're saying, let's all be looking at the same type of verse, namely the type John 3.16 or whatever it might be. And so if if a person uh, writes something down, every good boy does fine, and then another person copies it accurately, and you destroy the first one, the second person has the original text. It's the same exact type of scribbling, even though the ink might be different. So we do have the original text. uh, If textual criticism, which is the study of perhaps different readings among the thousands and thousands of manuscripts we have. And what we've discovered is that less than one-tenth of one percent of the New Testament has any serious question about where the original text is, but no doctrine hangs on that one-tenth of one percent. Stan, please add whatever you'd like. Sure. Jordan, to your question about what inerrancy means, maybe it's helpful to contrast it with other views of what the authority of Scripture might mean. Some would say uh, that the Bible contains God's revelation, but that's mixed with errors due to human authors. Uh, Others would say uh, the Bible is the musings of God's people as they try to understand their experience and and put that into their cultural context. Others would say it's simply a book written by human authors, but God meets us in the text as we read it. And, uh, And in this view, says, no, actually, the Bible is God's revelation to us without error, that it's the very mind of God. He has, through human authors, uh, given us to understand his nature, our situation, his desire, our future. So a simple definition, and uh, one tying into what you said, JP, I'd say is a, a view that says the Bible does not contain error. In other words, it's true and reliable in all it addresses. Uh, It's free of falsehood, fraud, and deceit. Uh, There are, I think, three key assumptions that underlie 
this view. First is that God, well, obviously exists, but is perfect in every way, including in intellectual ways. In other words, he knows all things. Uh, so he's omniscient, first of all. And secondly, he's perfect morally. So uh, he is honest and uh, cannot lie. Uh, secondly, in addition to those moral perfections that are assumed, uh, God chose to reveal some of his knowledge to us so we can know the truth he knows and would not deceive us in that. And the third assumption is that God is omnipotent. And if God desires to do something and it's logically possible, then it will be done and he can do it. So, uh, so, you know, he desires to communicate his truth. He can't communicate error. Uh, he knows all things. And therefore it follows if those assumptions are true, that what he communicates to us is in fact true and without error. Now, JP, you mentioned there are some ways error can creep in, in the copying from the autographer, the original to manuscripts, uh, very low percentages, you said, but there can be error creeping in there. Translation can lead to error from the Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic to other languages. Error can be, uh, can, can surface in interpreting what is in the text. And so that's where we just need to do our homework to be sure that we are working with the original text, the, the type, not the tokens per se, but the type, as you mentioned, uh, that we have done our translation work well, that we are interpreting it properly according to the genre, the context, the word meanings, and so on and so forth. And that we are doing so with a spirit of humility to say, you know, I, I could be wrong. Uh, others can correct me, but it seems that with all of this, this in fact is the mind of God. This is a revealed truth that God wants us to know through his inerrant or without error revelation. Well, Stan, that's so helpful, especially the idea of contrasting it uh, with alternative understandings. I'm really grateful for that. And maybe, maybe I could add one more qualification to this because so many people are confused. Um, well, two. Uh, the first one is that, as Stan pointed out, this is, this is God's word through human authors. So, by the mouth of David did the Holy Spirit speak, saying. And there are texts where a, a, a New Testament author will say, Therefore, God says, and you go back at the passage, and God isn't speaking, Moses is. But the assumption is that if it is an assertion of the Old Testament and the New, uh, then it is God speaking. Now, obviously, God guided the human authors to write exactly what he wanted without violating their agency and their own unique way of putting things because it is a divine human book. Uh, so the human authors also wrote from, from their own personalities and so on, but the spirit oversaw and guided, so that it ended up being exactly God's word and what God wanted. See, it's a, it's a fallacy to think that just because humans were involved, it is necessarily distorted. Right. Now, I don't know why that has to be the case, uh, it could be distorted, but just because a human being is involved, it doesn't mean that we have to make mistakes. Our fallenness and finitude doesn't imply that everything we do has got some error in it. That's just nonsense. 
Uh, I mean, two and two is four. I, there's all a bunch of things I know, even though I'm finite. And so the doctrine of inerrancy gives full weight to human authorship, but it does say the ultimate author who guided and directed the process to his own satisfaction was the spirit of God and the cooperation of humans in no way trumped uh, the complete truthfulness of this. So that's an important clarification. And then one more, and I'll turn it back to you guys. Inerrancy is consistent with uh, paraphrase. I mean, if you look at the speeches in the book of Acts, it would take Paul five, six, seven minutes to give that speech, and they were probably hour-long speeches. So what Luke is doing is giving us a, a summary of the speech that Paul gave. That occurs in some places, although I don't think it does as much as a lot of people think, in Jesus's assertions, because Jesus taught in very pithy uh, ways in easily memorizable form and didn't usually give long speeches, though on occasion that he did. But you have to remember that a speech that's recorded by Luke and Acts or recorded by Matthew in his gospel does not get its status as inherently inspired only insofar as it word for word represents what Paul and Jesus said, because the scriptures teach that the writings themselves are inspired. And so my understanding would be that when Jesus originally delivered that speech or Paul, it was an, it was an inspired spirit protected utterance. But when Luke went to summarize it, the Spirit of God also directed Luke's summarization so that it was in, in an inherently truthful representation of the speech for the purposes that the Spirit wanted, and the same mm -hmm. thing for Jesus. The, this doesn't rule out um, generalizations. Uh, you know, the whole village was at the door, you know, well, I... If there were three or four people homesick, I'm not going to lose any sleep over that. That's a figure of speech. It just means mm -hmm. almost, it, the, the place was packed out. So mm -hmm. it, you got to use common sense when you interpret the word it, with some hermeneutical principles, but you'll be okay. Mm -hmm. You've made some really interesting distinctions, particularly that last point. Would you further explain why that is so important? Well, yes. Uh, and I'll, maybe I'll give you another example. That'd be helpful. Um, there are places where the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, mm -hmm. but doesn't quote the Old Testament text word for word accurately. Now, is that an error? Well, yes, if the purpose of the New Testament writer in quoting the Old Testament required that he get every single word right to fulfill his New Testament purpose. But that's not what's going on. The New Testament writer is, his, his own writings are inerrant, whether they're quoting an Old Testament text or not. And so uh, if, they, if he quotes an Old Testament text in a summary kind of way, uh, as long as the way the New Testament writer summarizes that Old Testament text is accurate to the, to the meaning of the Old Testament text for the purposes of its citation in the New, 
then it's okay. Uh, let me give you an example in everyday life. This may be no longer true, but I can remember years ago, up, if you were up north, the word guy or guys, you could use that, and it stood for men and women. But if you were down south, the word guy was restricted to men. All right, so suppose that I gave a speech uh, up north, and I said, you guys have got to get more serious about your walk with God. And the audience would understand that that meant everybody in attendance, men and women. Now, suppose that somebody wanted to accurately represent exactly what I said to an audience, let's say in Alabama. If he used the word I used, it would actually confuse the reader of his newspaper article. So what he ought to do would, instead of putting the word guys in there, he might want to put folks where it says, y'all, yeah, (laughs) you folks need to get serious. Now that's a change, but it's an appropriate one in order to communicate what I said in Minnesota accurately to the people in Alabama. And so you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John emphasizing different things, perhaps paraphrasing Jesus' statement in in certain ways that their audience would more accurately get what he originally said. Now, the key that what inerrancy says is that these, these summaries or whatever it might be are themselves inspired. And secondly, they're true as long as they are a real, legitimate, accurate summary of what Jesus was getting at when he said what he did. It can't be completely distorted, or that would be an error. Mm -hmm. So that you have to keep in mind that those sorts of things are all consistent with inerrancy. It's interesting to see how how our Western uh, post-Enlightenment selves can understand that for something to be true, it had to be a transcript of a videotape of Jesus walking around on earth. Yes. This is simply not true for most of history. That's right. And for us to look back and uh, describe something as untrue simply because it is not a transcript of a videotape of Jesus walking around uh, is is an interesting error and uh, really really requires these distinctions that we're making about inerrancy. So why, broadly, is inerrancy so important or something that Christians should wrestle with? Uh, Jordan, that is such a good question. You know, if the scriptures are inerrant, then simply put, we can know the mind of God and the truth that he knows. Uh, And that is required for us to flourish, Flourishing requires we live according to what's true, and it assumes we know what's true. And so if we don't have the mind of God, we don't know truth of things beyond what we can discover through our own research, and we can do some of that through God's general revelation. But uh, there's so much more that is revealed we need to know, including truths about salvation, that if we don't have a a scripture without error, we do not have an understanding of what it means to come back to God and have a relationship with him. Uh, And then broadly, uh, more broadly beyond us, uh, only if the scriptures are inerrant and give us truth, can we understand what the common good is, how it is obtained, how it's promoted, 
uh, how we can be agents of bringing about the common good and ultimately God's purposes. So it's, it's critical that we have an inerrant text so we can truly know God's mind. If not, we can just then end up picking and choosing whatever we want to, you know, we then end up, end up following the cultural fads of our day. And in the words of judges seven sixteen or 17, six, doing whatever seems right in our own eyes. And unfortunately, I've seen way too many pastors, including one I'm very familiar with in, uh, in our town, who, uh, who have lost a view of, uh, of Scripture as an errant, and as a result, have now followed a whole list of all other cultural fads and um, have really uh, embodied what Paul is warning Timothy about in 2 Timothy 4.3, uh, where he says, the, the, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. And instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And without having a grounding in Scripture as, as, as authoritative and without error, that's where we end up. Mm. Sam is just so right, because, boy, if this domino falls, well, I have a friend. This friend of mine gave up inerrancy. Okay, well, now... He is at the point where he doesn't believe in hell. He doesn't think Christ is the only way to God. He thinks that some of the Bible's moral teachings are outdated and harmful, especially those about homosexuality. Uh, and, and uh, you know, so he, like Stan said, he picks and chooses according to his 21st century conscience and kind of culturally absorbed moral standards, what the Bible can't possibly be saying, because it violates my sensibilities, and this is what it must be saying. Well, you end up with, with a, 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 a dashboard Jesus, <laughs> and uh, that's, that's the danger of this, and uh, it's, a, it's a very, very serious problem. Church historians uh, uh, have have really uh, demonstrated this. In fact, there's, a, if I'm not mistaken, in the old book edited by Norman Geisler called Inerrancy, there is a chapter in there on the history of the doctrine of the Bible from the church fathers on, and they didn't use the word inerrancy. Didn't have to. They, they, you know, Augustine said, what, what Scripture says, oh man, God says, and when God says something, it's true. So, uh, you know, so it was just obvious that you didn't have to use the word inerrancy. People say, well, you know, C.S. Lewis didn't believe in inerrancy. Mm -hmm. Well, the Britishers just didn't, weren't sensitive to the issues. So he got it wrong. I don't, I don't think everything C.S. Lewis said was true. But if he, if he, if he wasn't concerned about inerrancy, that's because, sadly, his cultural context didn't allow him room just to think seriously about it. So he dropped the ball. By the way, there's one other thing that I, I think we should say here. I am actually weary of hearing people say that Christianity is really about a relationship with God. And I, I just want to throw up, when, because that is such, it's one of those slogans uh, that is so simplistically wrong and it's a, I think it's often a dodge for laziness. But here's what's wrong with that. It's reductionistic. 
the Bible is about a relationship with God. Amen. Yea, verily, and amen. And how to have that and foster it. It's also about all kinds of truths that are important for our lives. For example, the Bible contains a whole lot of teaching about the nature of the family, about the way you relate to your kids, about the role of a father and a husband, if he's going to be a good one, the nature of forgiveness, uh, what, what exactly is love, and what are its main characteristics. Now, those are truths. Now, do they have applications to relationships? Yeah, but, but, but that doesn't make them all about relationships. They're, they're intrinsically valuable because they're truths about the a whole range of things in life. And thank heavens, they also have instrumental value as a means to an application to relationships. That doesn't exhaust their value. If Christianity is about relationship, then the point of the Bible is to ultimately mediate or facilitate a relational encounter with God. And I don't agree with that. I think there's huge, and I mean 80%, 90% swaths of the Bible that are there to give us God's mind on a whole range of important things that knowing the truth about those things makes a huge difference in life. So why does it have to be either or? Hmm. I've never, why can't it be both and? Hmm. Christianity is about knowing the mind of God through revealed truths in nature, but more specifically in the word. And it's about a personal relationship uh, with, with the triune God himself, both and. Hmm. Well put. So I have, I have a bit of a case study here for you. This really happened. Two friends were having a conversation and one is uh, atheist agnostic and one was a Christian. And the atheist agnostic turned to this friend of mine and said, you know what did it? You know, it just turned me away from Christianity. It was just, it was this one thing. She said, no, what was it? He said, well, take Matthew 13, 31. This is Jesus speaking about the faith of a mustard seed. So the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And then he goes on to describe the mustard seed as smaller than all the other seeds. He said, the mustard seed is not the smallest seed. He's the God of the universe and he should know that. And that is why I walked away from Christianity. Well, I would say, and I want to say this respectfully, but that is one of the most idiotic reasoning processes I've ever heard in my life. If he's right and, and there was a mistake there, then what we give up is the full inerrancy of Scripture. But how does it follow from that? that there isn't evidence that the resurrection happened, that the Gospels aren't historically reliable. And so you don't have to believe in inerrancy to become a, a, a born-again believer. Uh, in fact, if a person says, I can't choke down inerrancy, uh, then I would say, well, then just forget about it, because there have been a lot of Christians who haven't been full inerrantists but they've taken the scriptures to be historically reliable enough to where we know with a high degree of historical confidence what Jesus said and did. 
that he was the son of God and that he actually died for us and rose from the dead. So there's a plenty of evidence to, for believing that, even if the Bible isn't inerrant and it's got a, some mistakes in it. Uh, so uh, the first thing I would do is I just, it's like evolution. If somebody says, well, I said, we'll just set that aside for right now. Uh, what we're dealing with here is, does God exist? And is there reason to think Jesus was who the New Testament claims he was? Those are the two deals. Now, once you get those bolted down and a person says, I think you're right, then you begin to say, okay, let's learn as disciples of Jesus to try to believe what he did. And if we have obstacles, let's deal with them. And so you bring in issues about like intelligent design mm -hmm. and inerrancy and so on. But those are subsequent. And if I have a really good book uh, on some subject and I find one mistake in it, it doesn't follow that there aren't still a ton of really truthful points in that book. Then the other thing to say would be that this is not a text that is seeking to affirm something about the nature of the biological world. There are texts that's, whose purpose is to affirm something about the nature of the world, like the idea that there was a created creation event and that the universe has not been here in forever. Those texts are clearly, when you read them, attempting to give us truths about the nature of the world we live in. And there are other texts that if you interpret them, it's obvious that they're doing that sort of thing. But when the, when the Bible teaches that the trees clap their hands and sing praise to God, I don't give up the Bible because that's an assertion about biology that we know is not true. It's clear from the text context. That's a figure of speech. It's not attempting to give a lesson about the biological world or trees. And it's saying the entire universe gives in some way gives glory to God by, by its very nature. I would say the same thing. Jesus was picking an example of a tiny insignificant seed that was so small you could miss it. And he said, hey, if your face like, well, like that over there, that mustard seed. You know, if it had been something else he was talking to, he might have pointed to a, a, a corn seed or something else. Who knows? Uh, you know, and then it's the smallest of all the seeds is just a figure that says this thing is, you know, how small it is. And yet look what it does. I'll summarize by saying, if you interpret the passage where he makes that utterance, you ask yourself, is the point of this to describe accurately the biological world? No, the point is to make a, a spiritual point, and he's using what is close to him and using a hyperbole in order to, sh to shock them into recognizing that even a little bit of faith is going to be able to do a lot. That's what that's about. Mm -hmm. So you got to got to interpret these things. I mean, if I read the sports page and it says, you know, the Chiefs uh, kill the Broncos— and and actually, just after, by the end of the second quarter, they had destroyed the Broncos' defense. Well, I'm not going to look for those guys and put them up for murder because I know that that's a hyperbolic figure of speech because I recognize the point of it. And that's what you have to do with that Matthew passage. It's ridiculous. If they're going to do that, then he's got, then let's be consistent and read all other literature with that same kind of wooden literalism and see how that goes for you.
or tell their when the white when their wives say, "How do I look in this dress?" Uh, honey, you've never looked better. Well, you know, don't you can't do that. <laughs> we will return to the show in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. If you are like most of our listeners, you are concerned about the ideas being promoted in our universities today. We too often hear about what is false and even harmful being promoted as true. Christian professors are called to stand up for what is true, good, and just, and teach their students to do the same. Help equip Christian professors to do so at www.global-scholars.org. Please also check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith. While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities. The College Faith Podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. Students, as well as parents of students and soon-to-be students, will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. Visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to Thinking Christianly. So there are good arguments for inerrancy. Tell me about some of the ones that are bad arguments offered against inerrancy. Well, I've, I've got three. Uh, JP might have some others. Uh, and actually, I'd love to have you comment on some of these also, but uh, in no particular order. Uh, one is the, uh, the ad hominem argument that uh, a pastor recently I heard speaking on this said, well, I'm not an errantist because I know a lot of errantists and they're SOBs. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and then uh, compare, compare them to the Pharisees and Judaizers uh, who, who believed the Bible to be God's word without error, but look how they lived. So, yeah, they're, therefore, uh, inerrancy can't be right. And, uh, you know, that's clearly, you know, an argument against a person, not a position. So yeah, maybe everybody who does believe in inerrancy is an SOB or like a Judaizer or a Pharisee doesn't mean the view is wrong. Just means everybody who believes the view happens to have a, a morally inadequate life, but, uh, that's a pretty common objection. Uh, have you heard that one, JP? Oh, have I? <laughs> uh, yes, I, yes, I have. And if I, if you could put the argument that they're giving in a formal argument, and here's the premise: none of my smart friends believe in inerrancy. Mm. Conclusion: therefore, not inerrancy. <laughs> mm. I mean, you know, I mean, how does that is just a howler? Right? <laughs> just, the conclusion does not follow from the premises. So that's a good one, Stan. Yeah. Well, and the fact is that all of the us who do believe in inerrancy fail also. So, uh, you know, I grant this pastor's point and say, yes, I every day fail. And uh, I admit that, but uh, has nothing to do with whether the view is true. In fact, it supports the view because the scripture itself says that will be the case. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, here's another one. Uh, inerrantist pick and choose. And really nobody's... Uh, at the end of the day, an inerrantist thinking all of scripture is true. And a classic example is Leviticus 19.19 says, don't wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. But people who are inerrantist wear clothing woven of two kinds of material, as I am right now. (laughs) So the argument goes, see, even those who really think, who, who say they think 
the scriptures are inerrant, don't live like it is, and they pick and choose what they want to out of it. And of course, uh, this is, is, is a fallacy known as a straw man because it mischaracterizes the position of inerrancy, uh, specifically by ignoring the notion of progressive revelation, that from Genesis to Revelation, there's an unfolding story, and it's a redemptive story, sometimes referred to as the four chapters of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And in each of those chapters, there's different things going on as we move toward the climax. And in the Old Testament, before Christ came and after the fall, everybody was looking forward to his redemption, to the Messiah coming. So there were laws that people lived under. And Paul speaks to this in Galatians 3.24. He says, so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. So yes, there are things in the Old Testament that are no longer binding on, binding on believers. Uh, but that doesn't mean the scriptures aren't inerrant. It just means that there's a process, there's a development that's going on as the story of God's redemption unfolds. Well, and to prove that again, Paul says in two places, that I tell you a mystery. And if you look at the word mystery, uh, it, it very clearly means by Paul something that he is now going to reveal that you cannot find in the Old Testament. Mm. That's what made it a mystery. It is not revealed in the Old Testament. Thus, there is a progress of revelation, and now the timing is right for this particular point to be told to God's people. That this is a, when you raise kids. Uh, there are times when you, if they're going to ride a bicycle, and I did this, and I'm sure you did, you have training wheels for a period. And I might say, uh, uh, well, and I did say, actually, to both my daughters at a certain age, you need to make sure that those training wheels aren't wobbly before you get on the bike. Because if they are wobbly, you come to me and I'll tighten them up. Now, if, 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 I were, if I were to say that to my 20-year-old daughter, <laughs> that would just sound stupid. But you see, just because the teachings of God are inherently true on our view, it doesn't follow that they were meant to, to be uh, applicable for all time. There were times when God permitted certain things like polygamy. Uh, for a larger purpose, doesn't mean he affirmed it, but he he overlooked it because they, 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 the human race was not ready at that point, and he had bigger issues to deal with. Later, it became clear, and and on it goes. Now, what about the, so so? This is a good point, Stan, that you're raising, and I, and we would just say sometimes there are tw- training wheels, but now somebody says, well, but that just looks silly to me. Well, I will assure you that if you find Old Testament scholar, evangelical scholars who've spent their lives studying the Old Testament and read a careful commentary, you will be able to find clear reasons exactly why that command was important for that time. Mm-hmm. They're not superfluous or stupid except to uninformed 21st century eyes in Western culture. But if you understand what was going on then, they make perfect sense for them and their and their training wheel sure. context. So that would be something to add. And Stan, you had a third one? I do. And I think it's the most common one I actually hear most. And it's the idea that iner- inerrancy is actually just a Western or enlightenment idea that we should reject 
uh, sometimes it's cashed out in terms of being a modern notion driven by, by mechanistic, modernistic, rationalistic thinking and an approach, which is very foreign to the, the Bible. And so this notion of inerrancy is not something that all through church history uh, or, or even going back to Jesus would have been affirmed, but it's just something we've come up with now in this new enlightenment way of seeing the world. And, uh, and some might use the term inerrancy that way. I, I grant that, but I certainly don't. And, and, and I, I, I know, JP, you don't take it that way. And most I know who are inerrantists don't. Uh, and hopefully some of the things we've said already make that clear. But the argument that I give for inerrancy that uh, hopefully we'll get to it in, in a bit uh, shows that Jesus himself was an inerrantist, <laughs> even though he clearly was not a Westerner, a, a modernist, an enlightenment rationalist. Uh, but nonetheless, he did believe the Bible to be without error. So, so I, don't, I really don't think that this has anything, this idea of inerrancy has anything to do with Western uh, modern rationalistic thinking. Uh, JP, would you comment on that? Do you have some thoughts? Yeah, I think you're dead, dead on. And I would say... Um, what's interesting to me about that whole criticism is that I think Stan's response is the best way to address it, but there's another way to address it that is weaker, but it tends to force people who raise this onto the horns of a dilemma. And what I would say would be that even though this came from modernist Western culture, uh, in not, and it, let's grant that it never was observed before that, purely for the sake of argument, though Stan is right, Jesus was an inerrantist, but granting their point, purely for the sake of argument, mm-hmm. uh, all that follows is that it took the intellectual context of modernist Western culture to have eyes to see the truth about what the Bible says about itself. Prior to that time, people were not able to see it because they didn't have the kind of insights that modernist Western culture gave them. In other words, they think that because it came from modern Western culture, it's bad. But I'm turning it around and saying that it could be that the the historical context of, of of a modernist Western cultural situation was precisely what had to be there before people discovered this. Mm. You know, there are doctrines that have always been in the word, but people didn't have eyes to see what it said until later. Now, here's the, what's why that's relevant. That's exactly what these people are constantly doing. They're saying that the Bible always never forbid homosexuality, never. But it took until the latter part of the 20th century, up until now, for people to finally get it. Nobody saw it before then, but now we have eyes to see that there's nothing at all wrong with homosexuality, except if it's with temple prostitution or, or some other bullying or whatever. Now, now I'm not, I don't agree with that, but what I'm saying is they're using the argument that people missed this. All, I mean, I, Joel Green at Fuller, that was at Fuller Seminary, leading New Testament guy says that up until the uh, 1960s or 70s, the church believed that there was a soul because they read the Bible through the eyes of the ancient uh, the eyes of Plato. And they read into the Bible, Platonic dualism. It wasn't in there, but that's the way they read it. But in the, in the 60s or so, with the rise of neuroscience, uh, 
uh, we looked at it with new eyes and began to realize that that we are mater purely material objects or our brains. But it took a neuroscientific hermeneutic, says Green, mm -hmm. approaching the Bible through the teachings of neuroscience for us to see what's really going on. Well, if, if that if what's sauce for the materialist goose ought to be sauce for the inerrant Iskander. It took until, you know, the, the modern times for us to have the eyes to see what was already there, but nobody could see it. Now, that's not my view, but I, that's just a way for the sake of argument to say, well, if you're going to ride this horse, then stay on it, even if you don't like where it's going. Good point. And we will have to do a podcast critiquing green at some point, but uh, it's a great illustration. Hey, I want to be fair and offer three bad arguments that are given for inerrancy also, because these come up often and I think they hurt the case uh, significantly. Uh, and the first is that the Bible is inerrant because it says so. Uh, it's a circular argument. Uh, it starts with 2 Timothy 3.16 that says, all scripture is inspired by God. And since God would not lie, that must be true. Therefore, all scripture must be in inspired and therefore inerrant. Mm -hmm. uh, more succinctly said, maybe the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. And uh, though though that, that's true, I believe as an errantist that... Uh, the Bible says it, uh, it, it, it's true. I don't believe it for that reason, simply because the Bible says it. I think there's a good argument for inerrancy, but this is not it. This is, again, a, a circular argument that, that begs the question, that assumes in the premise what it concludes then. And that's problematic, and we ought not do that. Yes. Uh, would you agree, JP? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll go on if you'd like, uh, or you can add something else. No, keep going. That was good. Okay. The second one I hear is that the Bible doesn't need our arguments. It doesn't need me or anyone else to defend it as God's word. It just is, and we need to recognize that fact. And in fact, to make an argument in defense of the Bible puts human logic above the Bible and therefore above God, and we must not do that. And there are a lot of problems with that, but JP, I'm going to give you the floor to maybe offer some thoughts on that. Well, I've heard that so many times, mm -hmm. and the first thing that's wrong with it is that it is inconsistent with what the apostles did in the book of Acts and what Jesus himself did. When Paul says that he persuaded them mm. and he was arguing, uh, not and from the scriptures with those who held the scriptures, but from the creation in Acts 17 with those who did not accept the scriptures, the, the Gentiles. And so there is, Jesus used arguments uh, uh, to uh, with the Sadducees and the Pharisees about the reality of a soul after death and so on. And so uh, it just, that's not the way that biblical writers did that. Secondly, the objection itself uses the very thing that it's denying. It uses logic and reasoning to formulate the objection against using logic and reasoning. Now, uh, the, the, the lesson for, from that is that the use of logic and reasoning is unavoidable if you're going to offer a claim that has some support to it. Mm -hmm. If it has no support, then just stop bothering me. I'm not going to you know, believe it just because you mouth it. So how does logic relate to God? Well, I think most people would say that logic is ultimately grounded in the way God's mind is ordered that the thoughts and propositions and concepts in God's mind 
stand in entailment relations and all sorts of logical relations so that logic uh, is not above God. It is grounded in God, and we're using, we're not using human reasoning. Uh, we're using uh, divine reasoning with our own limited faculties. Um, so, so those would be, uh, I think, a couple of things that I, that I would say. That's great. And you've written more on this, I know, and I've written some on this, and we can refer to those uh, in, our, in the show notes for those who want to read more. Let me get to the third objection, and I think this will be controversial. Some might not like this because uh, it sounds almost heretical, <laughs> at least if you're an inerrantist to say it, but it's the, it's the uh, objection that there are no contradictions, so the Bible must be inerrant. And while I affirm there are no contradictions, I don't affirm it for that reason as an argument. In other words, if this is the basis of one's belief in inerrancy, at, at any moment, one must be ready to suspend belief. In other words, every time a potential contradiction arises, every time something appears that might be a contradiction, some archaeological discovery uh, that has to be understood or some other, uh, whatever it is, then we have to suspend our belief in inerrancy until we determine there's no actual contradiction. And in fact, even when there are no current contradictions, we can't actually be sure the Bible is inerrant because tomorrow there might be an apparent contradiction that arises. So I think this leads one to ultimately at the end of the day, have a pretty weak view of inerrancy if, 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 if really one at all. Now, would you agree with that or push back JP? No, I'm with you. In fact, I wrote an article, uh, you know, at the beginning of my career in the eighties, uh, defending this very point as applicable to any field of study, when you have a, a theory like in organic chemistry, and there are some anomalies that seem to falsify the theory, hmm. uh, you, you you don't put the theory up for grab because there are a handful of things that appear to contradict it. If the theory where it really needs support, in other words, the major components of the theory are highly supported by the evidence. Hmm. If that's true, then these uh, peripheral sort of anomalies, uh, you should never abandon the theory unless the combined weight of all those anomalies are greater than the combined weight that you have for believing the central core pillars of the theory in the first place. And that's just the way science and every other field uh, assesses how much of an impact a purported contradiction should have. At some point, if there are enough of them, then that's fair. You'd end up giving up the theory. And, and, but we've got a lot of strong evidence for the core pillars of the doctrine of inerrancy, that Jesus was the son of God, that he rose from the dead, gospels are historically reliable, that God exists, and all those sorts of things, and tells the truth. And then uh, we go from the historicity of Jesus and the claim that we at least know enough about what he said to, to uh, understand his views on, on important things to him. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the important things to him was the doctrine of scripture, and he affirmed inerrancy. So I believe in inerrancy because Jesus believed it. I don't believe mm -hmm. in Jesus because I hold to inerrancy. And I established Jesus' belief in inerrancy without assuming inerrancy. I just assume the New Testament are historical documents. I get to his deity and resurrection and so on. Mm -hmm. And then I you know, assume that we've got, for reasons, that we've got his view on this. Great. 
In fact, if you can get to Jordan, the reference to that article you wrote back in the eighties, that'd be great for the show notes. And, uh, and I'm glad you summarized the, what I take to be best argument for inerrancy. I've written some of that, uh, some on that as well. And I think it, it avoids all the errors. These other lesser arguments make it, uh, it's not circular. It starts with common ground and hard data. It assumes we ought to be giving good reasons for our belief in inerrancy. Uh, it's not dependent on, on current ale- alleged contradictions. Uh, but to your point, if it, file, if, if it holds, if the argument goes through, then there's good reasons to believe in inerrancy, even if there's an alleged contradiction we haven't totally figured out yet. Or even not figured out at all. Uh, you know, and that, but that's not... That's not just something we Christians do about right. people in every academic field in the university do that with well, with well-grounded theories that have problems. Right. You say, well, we don't have a clue how to solve that. But I'll tell you, I've got enough evidence to know that this theory and it's, it is true. Yes. And, and unless you can, the combined weight of this overturns it, my, the fact that I don't know what to do with this thing is surely not even close to being to outweighing all the evidence I have for sticking to my guns. Right. That's that's just common sense. Right. Yeah. Good. Now, a word about certainty. We have to distinguish reasoned certainty from spiritual and psychological certainty. Hmm. Now, when when we talk about Descartes and certainty, he was talking about certainty regarding reason. And to have rational certainty meant... Uh, that the thing that you were certain about was so certain that if you negated it, it would be a contradiction. So that if I had total, complete certainty that God existed, then the statement, it's not the case that God exists, would be a logical contradiction, like two plus two is 17 and a half. Now, there, there, there's almost nothing that we have that kind of certainty about. I mean, I don't, including, I mean, I, maybe my own existence and the, some of the basic laws of logic, but that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, now, I, I, you don't have that kind of certainty about the external world, that, that there's a real world out there, because the statement, there is no real world out there and you alone exist, is not a contradiction. Now, what this shows is, I know that there's a real world out there. But to know something, you don't have to be certain. Uh, or You don't have to have what's called rational certainty. And in fact, in a, in a passage in Ephesians chapter 4, excuse me, 5, Ephesians 5, 5, Paul says, this you know with certainty. Now, if I were to say to you, here is a hamburger with pickles, the reason I would add with pickles is because it might it's possible to have a hamburger without them. If hamburgers by their very nature had pickles in them, then saying here's a hamburger with, with pickles would be utterly superfluous. All I need to say is here's a hamburger and it would follow that it was pickled. <laughs> but but Paul's sentence makes statement makes sense because it's possible to have knowledge without the pickle, that is, without certainty. And so to know something is to have a true belief about it that's based on adequate grounds. Adequate depends on the case. You have to deal with that on a case-by-case basis. 
but it doesn't have to be 100% certain. So I am not 100% certain that God exists or that Jesus rose from the dead or that the Bible is inerrant. I know all those things. I have a true belief that's based on adequate grounds, but those grounds aren't such that it's logically impossible that I'm mistaken. That's that's crazy. Now, psychological or spiritual certainty means that I am calm, I'm not unsettled, double-minded about this, and I have a peaceful confidence without any further doubts. I don't say our Father who probably art in heaven, even though I'm even though I'm not, uh, you know, I don't have Cartesian certainty, rational certainty that God exists. I know he exists, but I do, I'm at the point in my life where I have spiritual and psychological certainty. I just don't have any doubts about it. Now that, whether you have psychological certainty or not, is probably a function of your age. It may have to do with a lot of things, like maybe how much evidence you've read, but also things like were you abandoned as a kid? Do you have attachment issues? Are you insecure and you don't want to claim to, to really be certain because you don't like counting on things? You like want to give yourself a way out so you won't get hurt? So that kind of certainty is different. Am I certain that the Bible is inerrant? Yes, I have no question about it in my life, and I am settled spiritually and psychologically. Rationally? No, I'm not rationally certain that God exists. If you mean that the statement God does not exist is a contradiction. I don't think that's contradictory. I think it's false. And I, uh, but I do know God exists, and I do know that the Bible is inerrant, and I know that I know it. So that means you can know without being certain, and the question of certainty is something that I think you ought to just leave out and uh, worry about your adequate basis for what you believe. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a really, really good summary, but uh, it is only a summary. I think we should do a whole podcast on the nature of, of knowledge, certainty, doubt, and all those other related issues. Fair. Um, we are running out of time. I do want to circle back and summarize the argument you offered for inerrancy, JP. I think it is the strongest argument, the best argument, the one that believers ought to embrace as a reason to justify the conclusion the Bible is an inerrant, uh, I would summarize it in five premises. Uh, first, the four Gospels are historically accurate documents. Secondly, the central figure of those documents, Jesus of Nazareth, claimed to be and proved to be God in the flesh. Third, as God, he would not lie or mislead. Therefore, all he said is true. Fourth premise, he said the Old Testament is inspired by God and assumed it to be inerrant without error. Premise five, he also said the New Testament would be written by God through the apostles. It wouldn't be without error. Conclusion, therefore, we have good reason to believe the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments are inerrant. Very helpful. Thank you. That's excellent. Well, this brings us to the end of this episode five of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I am so grateful for your time, gentlemen. And as always, it's such a privilege to be with both of you. Thank you so much. Good to see you both. Uh, You as well. Yes, and you. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith, seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org slash podcasts. 
where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plank, encouraging you to think Christianly.